Good morning, church. This morning we're going to be reading from Romans 2, verses 12 through 29. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have written the code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Welcome to Salt Church. You guys can go ahead and grab a seat. And uh, man, good job, Jackson. You had to say circumcision like 10 times and you didn't even laugh. And uh, hey, just a reminder, you know, sorry about our slides up there. We are a church of grace. We are not professional. So please have grace uh, for us as, uh, as, you know, sometimes we forget little details like that, but that's all right. Uh, Well, my name's Keith. And uh, welcome to Salt Church, and we're going to be continuing our series uh, on the Book of Romans. And the theme of the Book of Romans is to be justified by faith. Justified by faith, not by works of the law. Now, why does this matter in our context today? A little bit about me. I used to be a teacher and a case manager. And uh, one of the things that case managers do is they help write these things called IEPs, and they get together teachers, counselors, therapists, doctors, speech pathologists, and uh, they come up with a plan to help struggling kids succeed. And I heard this story from another case manager that completely intrigued me. Uh, They said there was this troubled high school student who came from a broken home who was struggling with depression and suicide. So they put together this big team, and one of the therapists in this meeting said, if only we could show this kid how valuable they are. And at that time, a doctor said, whoa, whoa, guys, show this kid they're valuable. Look, I'm a doctor. We can care for this kid. We can come up with a good plan for this kid. I can even show this kid he's complex, that his mind is complex, his heart is complex, his body is complex, but I can't show him that he's valuable. That's completely outside of our power. Isn't that interesting? Doctors, therapy, Medication, it can help you. It can care for you. 
but it can't make you valuable. And so Paul the Apostle was preaching this revolutionary message. He said, hey, I can actually give you this free gift, this free message that can actually make you valuable. It can make you right with God, and you receive it by faith, not works. See, in all the world, we are justified by works. Justification comes after our performance. It's like a college degree. You pay for it. You work hard. And if you measure up, if you pass those finals, if you show up for those finals, you'll get the degree at the end of four, five, for some of you, six, seven years, right? All right. Uh, And it's kind of like dating, too. You go out on a date, and your job is to impress this person. And if you measure up to their standards, you get to go on a second date, right? And if you do enough and you perform well enough, you're going to take them home to meet mom and dad. You're going to propose someday. You're going to get married. But it's all up to how good you look, how good you smell, uh, how hard you prepare those dates, right? And so this is how the world works. But only in Christianity do we get the verdict before the performance. We are valuable before we do anything of value, because we're right with God, not by works, but by faith. And so I have three questions today to help us be a people who live out the life-giving power of the gospel. First question is this. If everyone is judged, are they judged fairly? Second, how can I tell if my religion is hypocritical? Do I have a saving faith? Or how do we move from a dead religion to a living one. So before we jump into the text, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your church. We thank you for this message, Lord, that is revolutionary, that, Lord, we can be justified by faith, that we're made right by faith, not by works. It's in Christ alone, by faith alone. I pray you give us ears to hear and hearts to understand the implications of the gospel, Lord, that it would set us free from religious-based performance, from trying to impress others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Does this microphone sound kind of weird to you, Chris? Do you think I should just go with a handheld? Is that okay? All right, let's try it out. I feel like I got a weird echo in my head, and it's hard to concentrate. So you guys want to grab me a handheld uh, in a moment. I'll just go ahead and uh, keep going through this message. All right, let's look at verses 12 through 16. Thanks, John. Testing, testing. All right, you guys all hear me? That sounds better, doesn't it? Amen. All right, that sounds better. All right, so let's look at verses 12 through 16. And it says this. We're actually, I think, going to have them on the, on the slides this time. All right, we, got, we good? We got 12? All right, we're doing good, all right? Um, and it says this. I'll read these again. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men's hearts. Now, when you read something like this, a big question comes up. How can God judge people as guilty from a standard that they've never heard of? They've never uh, believed in. They've never even had the opportunity. 
All right, imagine the person out there who's never heard of the Bible. He's never heard of the Ten Commandments. He's never heard of the gospel. And right here, Paul's saying, yes, that person is guilty too. Why? What's the answer Paul gives us? He says, the law is written on our hearts. He says, for Gentiles do good and bad. They judge people for right and wrong, even though they don't have the laws of the Bible. Paul argues we all have these laws written on our hearts. And think about it. Every society is going to have laws in place so there is justice and not complete anarchy. Some examples, most places in the world, if I cut you in line, you're going to be like, bro, that was wrong. You shouldn't do that. I need justice. Like, I can't just go anywhere in the world and punch someone in the face. They're going to say, that was wrong. Uh, I need justice. This is why, as the human race, we know rape is never okay. Racism is wrong. Genocide is wrong. And when these things happen in the world, the world cries out for justice. You guys have heard this uh, in these terms. These are human rights or universal laws. And think about it like this. The fact that we know something is wrong is proof there is a right way. Otherwise, how would we know if something were wrong? I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said this. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. So every culture wants justice, including ours, to make wrongs right. Paul even here says that we all have a conscience. It's a little bit twisted because of sin and bent towards selfishness, but we have one because we were made in God's image. And so as we judge others, Paul warns us and Jesus warns us to be very careful. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 2. He says this, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Uh, I love what a theologian named Francis Schaeffer said of this uh, text, that God will judge the secrets of men's hearts. He called it the invisible tape recorder rule. And basically what Francis said is God records every thought you've ever had that's negative towards somebody else. God is going to record every word that you've ever spoken towards somebody else. Think of some of the judgments maybe you've had this week. Maybe you judge someone for being late. Uh, maybe you judge somebody for having bad breath. Maybe you judge someone for being a bad friend. And if you're in a religious circle, maybe you judge adulterers. You judge thieves. You judge people uh, who are poor in-laws, right? We all judge our in-laws if you're married, right? It's just going to happen. And so what Francis says, he says, on the last day, you will be judged according to the standard that you've judged others. And you guys have all had bad breath before. You guys are all going to be late at some point in your life. You're all going to be thieves Uh, You're all going to commit adultery in your heart. And so what Paul is saying right here is on the judgment day, even if you've never heard the Bible, God will judge you according to how you judged others. And guess what? Everyone will be guilty. Everybody will be condemned because of how we judge other people. And this is why God is fair. He's judging everyone fairly. He's simply judging you based on how you judge other people. Now, maybe this bothers you, this whole idea of Judgment Day. And I would say, good, it's okay that this bothers you. Think about it like this. If you uh, believe in God, 
but he never disagrees with anything you think, would it really be God? Or is it just going to be this God that you made up in your mind? But I want to share some good news. If you're reading through the Bible and you disagree with God at certain points in the Bible, I would say that's good. Like maybe you see God's justice or his love, and it's just different than yours. Turn the other cheek of this radical love. Maybe it's different than you. And I would say that's good. That's a sign that you're not making up God in your mind, that it's actually the real living God. Guys, I run into so many people who say this in our culture. You know, I just can't believe in a God who would do this. Fill in the blank, right? And what they're saying is, I can't believe in a God who would be different than me. But that's kind of sad, right? And what they're saying is, I don't want to believe the truth. I just want to believe what I want to believe. The sad thing in our culture right now is people don't believe things based on truth. They believe things based on desire. But the truth is only the truth will set you free. Only the truth will save you, not your desires. And so here's the truth. You might say, I can never believe in a God who has judgment or hell. Maybe that bothers you. And they say, how does the punishment fit the crime? I mean, in eternal hell, separated from God and people forever under his wrath, doesn't that seem a little bit extreme, God? Right? Maybe you've thought that before. That's okay. But I love what Newton's third law says. This is how I explain it. This is how I can grasp this concept. What is Newton's third law? It says, for every action, there is an equal but opposite reaction, right? And so if you sin against an infinite and eternal God, what is the only plausible, reasonable consequence for that sin? An infinite and eternal consequence. Now, as temporary finite beings, this is really hard for us to wrap our minds around, that God is infinite and eternal. But it shouldn't surprise us that God is different than us with his love and his justice because he is infinite and eternal. And the reality is this, Salt Church, we can't change God. We can't try to make him more like us and appear tame to our society to not make people mad. No, actually, we need to repent and be transformed into the truth of his image and what the scriptures say. And the reality is we all will face him on judgment day. Like God's not going to face us on judgment day, right? It's going to be the other way around. And so Paul says we need to seriously ask this next question as we will all face this great day that Paul talks about. And the question is this. Is my religion hypocrisy, or do I actually have a saving faith? Let's look at verses 17 through 24 to help answer this question. Verse 17 says this, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind— a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, The name of God 
is blasphemed among the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles were anyone who wasn't God's people outside of the knowledge and relationship with God. So in these days, a Gentile was anyone who wasn't a Jew. Today, we could say a Gentile is anyone outside of the church, anyone who doesn't have a saving faith in Jesus. And and what Paul's saying is these people look at the church, looked at the Jews and said, you guys are hypocrites. How could I believe in a God when you are so hypocritical? Same problem today. And what Paul is saying is the problem with moralistic religion is this. He was saying the Jews in Rome were relying on the law, that they were bragging about their heritage, that they were convinced they were a guide to the blind, and they took this good thing, the law, the letter, morality, and they made it into an idol. Moralistic, performance-based religion. They thought they were saved because of their heritage, the family they were born into, the people, their race, and because of the good works that they did, they were better than the Gentiles. In churches, it sounds like this today. You call yourself a born-again Christian? You say you're right with God because you grew up in the church or you got baptized? You've helped lead others to Jesus? Uh, You've studied the Bible today? And uh, you think you're a light in a dark world? You teach others, but do you teach yourself? See, what tends to happen in religious circles, you sound like this, I'm good and everyone else is bad. But what the gospel says is everyone is bad and only Jesus is good. I love what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He was a, uh, a doctor who became a preacher, wrote many great books, led an amazing church in his life. And he said this, the problem with religion is when you read the scriptures and you come across sin or sinners, You tend to think of other people and you say, ah, yes, this applies to them, the Gentiles, those bad people. And when we treat the Bible like this, it becomes very dangerous in a bad way. See, the point of reading the scripture when you get to sin and sinners is you should say, Lord, that's talking about me. Have mercy on me, a sinner, and thank you for your grace. Thank you that I receive a right standing with you by faith. So do you teach yourself? Do you preach the gospel to yourself? And the gospel is this. I'm more sinful than I could ever imagine. I'm so sinful, in fact, that God had to die for me. Yet, simultaneously, I'm more loved than I can ever imagine. And I receive a right standing with God by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Not by how good I am, not by my religious works. And so Paul says we need to teach ourselves the gospel and not moralism, because moralism won't save you, it won't save me, it won't save anyone else on judgment day. See, for the religious, hypocrisy looks like this. Paul said, you don't rob people physically, uh, but you wish you had more money. You covet in your heart. And maybe you only hang out with rich people, and when you see the poor, you walk the other direction, because they can't benefit you. Uh, The religious person says, I don't cheat on my spouse, but I wish I could have sex with other people and I lust after other people. And religious people might condemn adulterers and then they have a secret addiction to pornography. See, religious people say, I'm not violent with people, but I am with my words. I gossip, I slander, and I murder the reputation of other people. And so Jesus, I loved his ministry on earth. While he was on earth, he challenged the religious people. He came up to these people, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, these people who were extremely religious, who tithed, who who dressed nice, who had these dietary restrictions. And Jesus came up to them and said, oh, you think you're religious? Guess what? You're not religious enough. You need to be perfect as I am perfect. 
See, the reality is there's two ways to be valuable. There's two ways to have a right relationship with God. There's two ways to have eternal life. Picture heaven with this front door. And it says, anyone who is perfect can enter in these doors. And like 90% of the world is lined up here. I'll get valuable by the things I do by trying to be perfect. And nobody can get into that door. But Jesus is the son of God, the only sinless person. And he walked through that front door and he opened up a second door, the back door. And he says, anyone who believes in me, who puts their faith in me, I will make you valuable. I will make you righteous. I will restore you to God. But you have to let me carry you in by my righteousness. But because of human pride, we usually say, I don't need Jesus to carry me in. I can get in on my own. Now, secular people today in America are just as inconsistent as religious people. Uh, Our culture is very religious. I would say we follow the religion of tolerance, right? We say, follow these ethics, follow these rules, and we can create a utopia right here on earth, even though we don't have God. Heaven on earth right now, if you follow these laws, and we can do it without God. How? We say, accept all peoples, accept all beliefs, And you know what's funny? We say, don't judge, but then these people become the most judgmental people in all of culture, right? It's funny. It's like the people who promote tolerance are actually the most intolerant people of all, right? They say, yeah, we accept all people. And then you're like, yeah, I believe the Bible. It's great. I think it's the word of God. And they're like, we can't accept you. And you're like, wait, I thought you said you accepted all people. And they're like, we do accept for you, right? It's so inconsistent. It's like religion. See, culture is hypocritical, just like religion, which is why the world needs something better, which is why Paul preached the gospel. It's the power to save. And that's why we planted Salt Church, because we believe this gospel has the power to change lives for eternity, redeem family trees, something that moralistic religion that our culture and that religion pushes that can never measure up. Only Christ can do it. And this is the truth. Some people don't want God because they hate him. But some people don't want God because they see how hypocritical Christians live. They're not loving. They're hypocrites. So here's my application to this point, how not to be a hypocrite. All right, number one, when you read the Bible, like I said, let it transform you. Don't use it to judge other people. First of all, Jesus said, remove the log from your own eye before you remove the speck in your brother or sister. And so when you read the scriptures and you see this sin, say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Forgive me, God. Show me your love. And then let me love hypocritical people just as you love me, a hypocrite. Number two, do you believe you're superior to others because of your heritage? Do you believe it's your ethnicity, your socioeconomic background, your religion, your identity, or because you grew up in the church? Do you believe that's what makes you valuable and superior to others and right with God? Paul says, if you think your value comes from these things, you're rejecting the gospel, and you're actually in danger of judgment. Next is how we interact with the world. A lot of people say Christians are hypocrites because of how we interact with the world. And I love that Paul was writing to this church in Rome, and they were struggling with the same thing uh, that Christians struggle with today. See, the church in early Rome, uh, the culture said this, you need to affirm and you need to honor all the deities. You need to worship and bow down to Zeus and Artemis and all these Roman gods. It's the same thing today, right? They say you need to affirm and honor all the identities, right? 
And as Christians, we need to do what the early church in Rome did. We need to say, no, we're not going to affirm those deities. We're not going to affirm those identities. But you know what we're going to do? We're going to love you. And we're going to show you a better way. And when we argue with you and when we debate with you, we're going to also show you not that we hate you like the world shows, but that we actually love you and care about you. And you know what? We're going to be hated by a lot of people, just like the Romans hated the Christians. But a lot of Romans looked at the church and said, man, these guys really love me. Like, I might not agree with them, this whole crucifixion thing. Jesus is the only way. But man, they make great neighbors. Man, they make great coworkers. And would that be true of us, Salt Church? We can debate passionately with the world. We're not going to bow the knee to all the different identities in the culture, but we're going to love people. We're going to show them the truth. And I pray that at the end of that debate, they say, you know what? That Christian believes some weird stuff, but you know what? They actually love me. And the last thing Paul says to avoid being a hypocrite is practice what you preach. Be a doer of the law, which leads to my third point. Let's look at verse 29. And uh, verse 29 says this. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. See, dead religion happens when people trust in their traditions, which is the letter, and they trust in their rules more than God. This happens today in Christianity when people trust in Christianity more than they trust in Christ. And when this happens, we don't have a living religion. We have a dead one. It's a religion that doesn't change the heart, but focuses on behavior. And so how do we leave dead religion and have a living one? It's this, Christianity is not behavior modification. It's heart transformation first. The behavior will come later. Now, what is circumcision? Don't think about it too much in your mind, all right? But we'll just briefly go over this. Circumcision was cutting off the useless skin, the flesh, which was a picture of the old nature, the old habits, the sinful habits. It's the wrong motivation that's within all of us. And it was a sign of the old covenant. It started with Father Abraham, and then after Abraham, God said, every Israelite male needs to get circumcised as a sign that they're my covenant people. But what the Jews did with the sign, the sign of circumcision, is they made it the focus instead of the sign. John Randall said it's like this. He said it'd be like going to Disneyland, but instead of going to Disneyland to enjoy Disneyland, you, turn, you, you go to the sign that says, turn left here, and you don't go to Disneyland. You just hang out at the sign, and you're like, man, this sign is so amazing. So we should just hang out here all day. And you miss out on the whole purpose of the sign, which was to lead you into this fun relationship with God. And that's what the Jews were doing. They were focusing on the wrong thing. So circumcision was cutting off of the flesh, and this was a physical picture of a spiritual reality, something that was supposed to happen to your heart. Uh, Similar to baptism, which we're going to see today. It's a physical picture of what has happened uh, to this young lady's heart. And so how does the flesh motivation work? What is the flesh? It's really fascinating. The Greek word for this is sarks. This is where we get the word sarcasm, tearing of the flesh. You guys ever have someone crack a satirical joke at you and you're like, It's kind of true, but that hurt my feelings, right? Like, that's how satire works. You're attacking, you're tearing their flesh in a very passive-aggressive way, right? 
And we're going to talk more about the flesh in Romans as we go through this book. But it's the part of you, like I said, that wants you to sin, to put yourself first. It's the wrong motivation in all of us. How does this flesh motivation work? I was listening to this podcast by a guy named Dave Ramsey. He's this Christian financial advisor, and he's kind of like an older guy now, so he's like pretty rude and blunt, which I think is hilarious. Uh, He could actually probably be a little bit more loving, all right? Let's be honest. Uh, But sometimes people need to hear the truth, right? And so he's talking to this really young guy who just got his first job out of college. He's making $60,000 a year, and he's like, Dave, I want to buy a $60,000 car. And he's like, why? Like, I don't think that's a good idea. Like, you should get a reliable, dependable, nice vehicle. But why a $60,000 car when you have these debts and you can hardly afford this? And he said to him, what is your motivation for wanting a car this nice? Is it because it's a status symbol to you? Do you need to prove to your family and your peers that you finally made it? In life, are you using this to get rid of some insecurity that you had? He said this. He said, look, if you can figure out a car as transportation to get you from A to B and not a status symbol, get something reliable, get something good. But if you let it put you into slavery, it's going to ruin your life. He said one of the reasons people in America are poor and in debt is because they buy things like really nice cars that they can't afford, but they do it for the wrong reasons. They go into debt, the car loses value, and then they can't be generous with their life anymore. And so he said this was idolatry. It's like religion. It always leads to spiritual slavery. We run to these things to try to make us valuable, but it never can fulfill that desire. And I love what Dave Ramsey said. He said, if you can be content in Christ and know you're valuable, you can pull up next to somebody who has a car four times better than you, and it doesn't make you feel insecure. You just preach the gospel to yourself in that moment. I'm valuable in Christ. He might have a better car than me, but it doesn't mean I'm insignificant. And so Paul is saying right here, cut out that kind of thinking. Cut out that wrong motivation from your life. Stop trying to prove yourself to the world and get the praise of man and trust Christ. And so Paul here says there's two different kinds of motivations in life. One good, one bad. There's the praise of man and there's the Praise of God. Now, like I said, America is very religious. And I think how religion works in our culture is we need the praise of others to continue on in life. We post things on social media. We support this cause or that cause. And we need people to watch. We need these, their approval. And when we get into these groups, they all think like, the, like us. And we need them to affirm us. See, the praise of man is always going to be the motivation in religion. And you guys know that me and John can even fall into religion? It kind of looks like this. Here would be the wrong motivation as a preacher. Me and John come here on Sunday. We're going to preach. And we're like, we need you guys here to show up to rid some insecurity in us. Because if we don't have a large crowd, we just feel really insecure. But if our motivation for you guys to come here on Sunday is to get rid of some insecurity that we have, I'm just going to tell you right now, that's religion. Me and John are going to be terrible leaders. We're not trying to love you and serve you. We're actually trying to use you. And that's what happens in religion. We use other people to get their praise, to get rid of some insecurity that we have about ourselves. And so what is the right motivation? How do we go from a dead religion to a living one? And I like how Paul says we first of all need to receive the gospel. Now, there's a story of a pastor named Brian Chapel. He grew up in this town in Ohio. Maybe you've heard this story before. Uh, but along these riverbanks, 
uh, there was some really unstable soil. And if you fell into it, uh, it was like quicksand. It, would, it could kill you. So there were signs all over the place that said, do not enter, quicksand, warning. But these two brothers were like, we need to go check this place out, right? So they go venturing into this place, and they don't come home that night. So the parents are panicking. They call 911, search and rescues out looking for these two kids. And what they find is shocking. They show up to these riverbanks, and all they find is a hand sticking up out of the sand. So they carefully go over there. They excavate and dig this kid out. They actually have to resuscitate him, perform CPR. And he comes back, and they're slapping him to wake him up. And they're like, hey, hey, where is your brother? Where is your brother? And he says, I was standing on his shoulders. And did you guys know that Christ died for you to give you a new life and to give you a new heart so that you can enter into this church, enter into this religion with thankfulness and gratitude. There was nothing you did to be right with God. You simply receive the free gift. You receive the new heart. And when you receive that, your motivation is going to be completely different in life. You're going to want to spend time with God because you love him. I love what Tim Keller said. This is a quote on circumcision of the heart. He said this, this is a vivid image. A circumcised heart is one that has been spiritually melted and softened. It means to have an active prayer life, not out of a sense of obligation or duty, but out of love because there's a sense of the presence, the nearness and the goodness of God. Now, I like how he says this. This is not to say that Christians always have to have great quiet times. Sometimes it's still hard. But there is something that the moralistic person does not have. Moralistic religious people may have feelings when they're caught up in the liturgy or excitement of preaching or corporate worship services, but they are radically unsure that God loves them. So there is from Sunday evening till next Sunday morning a sense of deadness emptiness, insecurity, trying to prove yourselves to others. I have a friend named Brian Johnson. He played football at Wyoming. He came to faith in Christ. And he said the craziest thing that happened to him was after he came to faith, all his friends were like, let's go party. Let's go hang out. Let's go to the bars. You want to go? And he was like, actually, I don't. I just can't believe that Jesus died for me. And I want to spend time in the Bible. That sounds way more fulfilling to me than going and doing all these crazy sinful things. But he said it was the craziest thing And what happened is he had received this gift. He had received this new heart. And the second thing, dead religion, going from dead religion to a living one, is we need to live out of this new identity, and we need to live out of this new motivation. Think about it like this. Why are we so easily offended in our culture? Why are we so easily discouraged? Why are we so fragile? And when someone gives us criticism, it just crushes us. It's because we're having an identity crisis. This is why most of us have this terrible negative self-talk. We say, man, I'm such an idiot. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did this around these people. And we leave and the shame just covers us because we think our value and our security is wrapped up in our performance and how other people view us. But this is the good news, Christian. The verdict is in for you. You are valuable in Christ, and this can't be taken away, and it's received by faith. Uh, One of the ways I like to think of it is like this. I used to be a uh, high school football coach, and, uh, you know, I actually played a lot of Madden, the video game, as a little kid, so I ripped all their playbooks, uh, which made me have a winning team, all right? We always had a winning team. I was the offensive coordinator, so young guys in here, like, if you play a lot of video games, 
It probably won't ever pay off. It's a complete waste of time unless you go into coaching and you get paid for it, okay? I think this is the only positive thing I've ever seen video games do in another person's life, all right? But anyways, I was coaching this one game, and my dad traveled all the way to just come watch me coach this team, right? The Wolverines, man. We were awesome. And after the game, we won, of course. My dad came down onto the field, and he was like, son, Keith, I'm so proud of you. I love you, son. And he gave me a hug. And man, getting that affirmation from your dad, it felt so good, right? Like I slept like a baby that night. I was like, man, my dad loves me. This is great, right? But it didn't last. Like two days later, I still felt insecure. And the reality is this, no man's praise can make you valuable or secure. But when you put your faith in Christ, he comes to you. And he says to you, you are my son, you are my daughter, and with you, I am well pleased. And you say, how can you still love me, God? I didn't do very good at work this week. And God says, I still love you. It's by grace that you're saved. I still love you. You can say, man, I messed up this week. God, I feel ashamed. Do you still love me? And God says, yes, it's by grace that you are saved. And when you receive this love, And this grace over and over and over again. And you see how much he loves you, that he'll never leave you and he'll never forsake you. You will go from a dead religion to a living one. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are a great big brother, that you have connected us to God the Father. And God, we thank you that everything that is true about your love for Jesus is true about us. That you say to us, I am well pleased with you. And God, I know it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard for us to believe that you actually praise us. Lord, it's, it's so hard. Uh, we often live for the praise of man. Please forgive us of that, God. And I pray, like Paul prayed, that you would give us spiritual power from on high, that we can understand how much you love us, and that you praise us. Not that you worship us, but you praise us because we are covered in the righteousness of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.